Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to everybody who's joining us at home on the live stream. My name is Mike. I'm on staff here at the church as our director of outreach and just want to express my uh, gratefulness to uh, Encountered Heart for that great uh, dance. Uh, yeah. I got to see it last night and just now, and I'm looking forward to the 11 a.m. service as well. I don't know about you, but Ephesians 4 just really came to life for me. So uh, much uh, appreciation for them. So uh, let's dive right in. If you have a Bible, if you would, take that out. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We're continuing our study through the book of Romans, picking up right where we left off last week. Romans 8, we're going to look at three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14. Once you're there, if you'd please stand in honor of hearing from God, I'd appreciate that. Reading from the ESV, the Word of God says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done, what you're currently doing and the good work that is still yet to be accomplished. We know it will because we can trust in your promises. Lord, thank you for allowing this gathering here to take place, that the people of God can come together in a, a safe place where we can freely open up your word to hear from you. Thank you for this local church that you've established. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are here today and those watching at home, I count it such a, a blessing and a privilege to be numbered among them. I love them very much, and I hope they know that. And I know that they love me, and so I'm grateful for the opportunity to open your word and deal with what I think is a rather challenging portion of Scripture. So, Lord, speak to your people through me. If there's anything that comes out of my mouth that's of me, let it just fall to the ground. Let it go in one ear and out the other. But, Lord, if it's from you, let it stick. Let it penetrate into our minds, our hearts, that would ultimately work itself out into our lives. I ask that you speak to your people today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful chapter. We began it last week. In this section right here, these three verses are so good. There are no theatrics needed from me, no long introductions. I want to just walk right through it. I just want to start there at the beginning of verse 12 with the words, So then. So then, like for and therefore and since, uh, Paul uses these words to, to drive us backwards, to make us look back at what just what has been written prior. And I think here in this portion of Romans 8, he's not just calling us back to maybe the verses we looked at last weekend. I think he's actually taking us all the way back some two and a half chapters to the beginning of Romans chapter 6, where he posed this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I think he's still answering that question here today. And I love the way Paul thinks. I love how he arranges his argument. He is methodically linear. He just, you know, one thought leads to the next, and he says, because of this, then that. And because of that, now this. Just like train cars on a track, he lines them up and links them together. He's rigorously logical. And it makes it 
easy to follow. You know, did you ever talk to somebody and they're talking about something over here, and then all of a sudden they're way over here, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about that. And Well, yeah, but I switched, and that's not Paul. Apostle Paul, right in a line, he lays it out methodically. And so because of that, we will be dipping back into what he has already written in Romans 8 and even going back into Romans 6. So he says, so then, brothers, he uses this language of family. This is familial language here, and he speaks to his brothers. And yes, these are the, the Roman believers in the first century that he's writing to, but we ought not view this letter from afar, from a distance. Enter in. Enter in. He's writing to us, calling us brothers. It's written for our sake, right? We can glean from this, even though it was written so long ago to an original audience. So enter in. When the text says you, insert you in there. It's talking to you as if he's our big brother, Paul. And he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Uses the word debtors. Some of your Bibles will say under obligation. We are under obligation. And the term debtors, I was thinking about that. Like, why the term debtors? Why does he, why does he invoke that word? Well, we get a sense of obligation when someone has done something for us. Right, I mean, this is the principle of obligation that's part of the human experience. Somebody does something for you, you feel a compulsion, an obligation to return the favor, right? One good turn deserves another. You know, if somebody serves you in some way, you at minimum, you feel like you ought to say what? Thank you. I hope you do that. We ought to be overflowing with those words, Right? Last night after the service, uh, my wife and I, we went out to dinner, and yes, we paid for the meal, but somebody cooked it, somebody served it, they're going to do the dishes afterwards, so we have an expression of gratitude at the end of the meal. It's called a gratuity. We leave a tip. They've served us. Service has been rendered, and therefore, we're indebted to that person. Now, I learned this principle at a very young age. I was about 10 years old, and my uncle took me to a New York Yankees game down in the Bronx. And I'm from upstate New York, and my mom, she said to me before we went, she said, Mikey, because that's what she called me still today, uh, Michael when she's mad, so I like Mikey. Mikey, New York City's not like Syracuse. It's the big city. It's the big city. The people in the Bronx, there's a lot of not-so-nice people there. Be careful. And so I remember going to the game, we're in the car, and we pull up to a red light, and out of nowhere, this very kind man came out with a squeegee in his hand and cleaned our windshield. Have you had this experience? Did you know that the Bronx offers this service? We didn't ask him for it. He just took it upon himself to do it. I thought, how kind of this man. He wants to make sure we arrive at the stadium seeing very clearly. My mom was totally wrong about the people of the Bronx, right? I mean, who knew the boogie down offered this service? Like, I'm thinking, are they going to change the oil at the next light? Like, well, how far does this go? Well, in actuality, he wasn't just doing it out of the kindness of his heart. He was performing a service in hopes to put us into his debt, that we would be debtors and give him something instead of just putting the hand out. You got to give it to him for the, you know, the kind of the ingenuity there, you know. I appreciate the thought. But, you know, I, as a kid, I'm like, this, is, this must be a free service. Because when the light turned green, my uncle just drove away. <laughs> it's like, okay. And I'm like, wow, Bronx is pretty cool. So Paul says that that's us, that, that, that we're debtors. But notice how he phrases it. He phrases it in the negative. He tells us what we're not indebted to, and that is the flesh. And we've talked a lot about the flesh here, and we have to today. We just, we have to. It's central. It's central to this text here. So when you, when you hear flesh, don't, don't think merely skin. It can mean that. It's not what it means here. This is that Greek word, sarx. 
And when you hear flesh, think that fallen human nature within us, when all its weakness that is dominated by sin. It's about lusts, desires to serve self. We have godly desires that come from God. That's not what these are. This is serving self. The hallmarks of the flesh are self-gratification, self-satisfaction, a constant pursuit of worldly pleasures in the things that God forbids. That's our flesh. You got the flesh, and so do I. And I thought a lot about my flesh in the last week. I gave my flesh a name. I call him Gorge. Not George, but Gorge. I think it rightly fits him. He's like this animalistic, blubbery creature, you know, donut powder on his face, drool running down his mouth, panting with this insatiable appetite for pleasure. Think Jabba the Hutt, right? Just, an, ah, just this flesh monster within me. And he knows nothing of moderation. This cat's about self-consumption, not self-denial. His mantra day in and day out is more, more, more. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Like the Proverbs say, what does it say? The eyes of man are never satisfied. Right here, never satisfied. Can't satisfy this guy. And I just frankly wish he would go away sometime. But like every day. But as long as we're in these bodies that we currently reside in, until we get our glorified bodies, you deal with the flesh and so do I. We, we have him. He's not going anywhere. He will, but for now, he's like this dead carcass that clings to us, that we drag around everywhere we go. And Paul says, you're not indebted to him, right? To that sinful nature, the sinful desire. Sin is like is like excrement covered in whipped cream, right? It looks good on the outside, and you start tasting it, it might taste good, but you got a surprise as you keep eating, right? So what has the flesh done? Uh, some fleeting pleasures? Yeah, let's be honest. There, there's, that's the allure of the flesh. But what does he bring us? Pain, misery, destructive habits, ultimately leading to despair, and in the end, and we're not in debt to him. We are to live according to the spirit. So with this flesh versus spirit dichotomy that, that Paul has established, he presents two conditional clauses in verse 13. And we do need to camp here for a while. Verse 13 says this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. You ever hear the phrase, it's a matter of life and death? Well, verse 13 is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. The die there, the death there, that's not a physical death. We're all going to die that death unless Jesus returns in our lifetime. But not everybody in this room is going to die that death. That's the second death. That is spiritual death. We're talking about hell. That is what's in view here. And so that's the first conditional clause. If you live as a continual manner, a manner, a lifestyle of walking according to the flesh, you will die. But then there's a second clause. The second clause says this, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you have a King James Version, you see the word mortify there. Mortification. Today, mortify, uh, it, it, it's changed somewhere along the, the line. I tried to look up like the etymology of the word. How, how did it go from what it used to mean to what it means today? We say today, uh, oh, I'm mortified. I'm so embarrassed, you know, mortified. That's not what it means in, originally. I don't know where the transition happened, but it means to kill. That's mortification. And there's a very popular book called The Mortification of Sin, written by a Puritan by the name of John Owen. He wrote an entire book about verse 13, alone. We have it in our library, unless somebody checked it out last night. But I, I read through it, and it is a tough read. 
So this battle that exists is the true Christian life. Flesh versus spirit. A fight unto the death. And we love a good fight, don't we? I think we do. Let me make my case here. I'll borrow an illustration from a a guy named Max Kellerman. Uh, That that name may sound familiar. He's an analyst at ESPN. He was on the show First Take. Uh, no longer, but he cut his teeth as a boxing analyst. And he was making the case for how boxing is so intrinsically attractive to us, or should be, over and against football, baseball, basketball, more popular sports. He was arguing for for the the, uh, this boxing being an intrinsically attractive sport. And here's how he made his case. He said, you're in your car, you pull up to an intersection and you look out at the four corners and you can see them quite clearly because your windshield's been clean, you live in the Bronx, okay? <laughs> you laughed a lot more than I did last night. I had, there was pity laughter last night. They're like, he's trying to be funny. Oh, ha ha, we'll laugh. I think that qualifies as a dad joke. But you look out, you're at the intersection, four corners, right? One corner, there's a man putting a golf ball. Another corner, there's a pickup basketball game. Third corner, people are throwing around a ball, baseball, football, whatever. But the fourth corner, there's a fight. What are you going to look at? Where does your gaze go? I would say men and women alike, we're looking at the fight. And that was his argument. He says, fighting captures our attention. There's something about it that just intrigues us. It, it, it attracts us. Now, you may not be a fan of MMA, mixed martial arts, but it is one of the, if not the fastest growing sports in the world. You might say, ah, that's too barbaric. And I might be inclined to agree with you, but somebody's watching it. It's growing. And you may not watch MMA, but you may enjoy Penn State football yesterday, or you may gorge yourself on NFL football today, right? What's going on there? It is a battle. It's a fight. You know, and and I know I use a lot of sports analogies. I hear it from people. I know. But I I like to think I use the sports analogy that we can all get even if you're not a sports fan. If you know nothing about the intricacies of the game of football, you can watch it on TV and be like, okay, some really big guys over here are taking a ball, trying to go that way. And then these other really big guys over here are trying to stop them. And they, they want to take the ball and go the other direction, right? Now, that's not going to get me any jobs at ESPN as an analyst, but... That's basically the game of football. What is it? It's a battle. It's a fight. It's a violent struggle. And we love it. Do we not love our football as Americans? We do. It's innate in us. And I think it starts at a young age. Before you even get in, in, you know, engrossed in things like MMA or uh, sports, you play video games as a five-year-old, play a game like Super Mario Brothers, right? What's going on there? You got, you got the princess, uh, Toadstool. She's uh, captured by Bowser, the bad guy. He's got her captive in a castle. Two fat Italian plumbers are going through this adventure, squashing mushrooms along the way, fighting the good fight to rescue the princess. It's a fight. It's the same thing. Struggles, battles, fights, conflicts, they are ingrained into who we are. And how many of us, young or old, are spending our time with the UFC fight card, watching football, playing video games, and we're neglecting this fight in Romans 8.13. This is the battle of all battles. Real consequences are, are at stake here. This is not a game. I told you the consequences. And if we fail to engage in this fight, you don't live to fight another day. You die eternally question of course at this point is are you in the fight are you in the fight so speaking of video games let me let me take a brief excursion here i do think this is relevant i will try to weave this in i thought about it this week Uh, a couple weeks ago i had a conversation with a pastor who uh pastors out in arizona for a ministry called u-turn for christ 
we're trying to get um, somebody here at Living Water involved in that. And it's uh, like a rehab place for, for alcoholism, you know, drug addiction. And so he says, primarily, it started off as alcohol and drug addiction. And I asked him, I said, do you, do you have people that, like sex addicts? He says, yeah, we, we, we get those too. And he goes, in fact, I'll tell you another one that will shock you. He says, you won't believe me. He says, but we're getting a tremendous influx of people who come to us who are addicted to video games. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. He says, they got to get away from the Xbox and the PlayStation, so they come to us for this, you know, this highly disciplined lifestyle, lots of Bible study, lots of devotions, all this stuff, you know, to just escape. And they come because they're addicted to video games. Let me quote a preacher for you here with a, who provided just, I think, a devastating critique of our culture. And this is, this is some hard words here, and he's coming at you gamers, okay? And I'll just say, I play video games, all right? He's coming hard here, but I, I'm a firm believer that hard words produce soft hearts, and soft words produce hard hearts. Here's what he said. He said, young men and now women want to go to war. Defeat an enemy, save a princess, be part of a kingdom, conquer a foe, and win a great epic battle. So they do it with their thumbs. And it doesn't even count. Nobody's really liberated. The enemy isn't really conquered. Women aren't really freed from oppression. It's all fake. You want to do something? Get off the couch, unplug the electronics, give your life to Jesus, find other like-minded people, and do something that actually matters. You know, and, and his congregation, they, they responded very positively to that. And I think there's a place for that kind of preaching. I do. It's not abusive. It's instructive. If we really care about people, do we want them ending up at U-turn for Christ because they can't put down the controller? You know? I mean, I think some of us need to hear this. And notice my word, some, right? And that's not for everybody. Some of us, we can keep video games in their rightful place. And I said, I play, right? I, I play with my boy, Nate. It's one of the things that he loves to do, and we have father-son time in doing it. So I, it has a proper place in my life, but that was not always the case. When I was 13 years old, I lived video games. That's all. I, they consumed me. I remember playing the game uh, Legend of Zelda. You guys remember Zelda? It's like late 80s. It's an adventure game. You battle bosses, travel from world to world to beat the ultimate boss, right? Well, it's a long adventure game, and I loved it. And you know what? At age 13, that's fine, right? But if 20 years later, at age 33, I'm a new believer, which I was at 33, whole Bible's just been opened up to me. I got a prayer life to cultivate, people to evangelize. I got a full-time job. If I'm sitting at the dinner table with my wife and two kids talking about I got to find the whistle so I can unlock World 7. Something might be wrong. And, my, and it was. My wife was sitting right over there last night. If you know her, she's not a shout-out amen kind of girl, but this is what I saw. And at dinner, she told me, if you kept that up, we would have had big problems. You know, she's like bloodshot up with the baby, and I'm like, oh, I got to find that whistle. Where's the raft? You know, it's all fake. And I knew it had to go. But here's what I'm here to tell you. God gave victory here. Even something small. You can call it small. I mean, this is kind of a small thing, I suppose. But you can make an idol out of anything. Video games. Calvin said the, the human heart, it's an idol factory. We just keep producing them over and over, and you can make it out of anything. And so I want to tell you that there is victory for our struggles. You know, as, as preachers, we share our struggles up here, and we, we do that. It's a good thing. It, it helps identify with fellow people, believers that are struggling. Because we don't be on high just talking down, you know. No, I want to enter in, all right? You know, I want to I put the spotlight on you but I'm also going to climb into the spotlight. I'm like, yeah, I'm right there with you. But we need to balance that out with the victory we have in Christ. We have power. It's not this woe is me condition. I can do no good. 
That is not the case. We're not these defeated Christians who are slaves to sin. Right? We're, if we're slaves to anyone, it's Christ. The, the Son sets you free. You will be what? Free indeed. Are you free or not? That's the question. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. That's an indicative. It's a fact. It will no longer have dominion over you. And the grace of God teaches us to say no. And we can. Because when I say yes, you know what I do? I'll tell you exactly what I do. Figuratively speaking, I say, here, slap the chains on again. Go ahead. Go put, put me back. I know what I'm doing. Spirit, I know the Bible. I know what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. But I willingly choose that. Because it's this flesh within me, these desires that are ungodly. What does God say? He says, he won't allow you to be tempted more than what you can bear. Right? He, he's, he's faithful. He'll provide a way out. But me, I'm like, I, I don't see any way out. I, yeah, there's a door over there. No, I don't see that. I see my sin. But we're not these defeated Christians who must live in a perpetual state of frustration. We need to balance that out there, manage that balance. Because I'll tell you right now, if your killing sin meter is a flat line and it's been a flat line, you're dead. That's what, that's what it says here. Romans 8.13 it says you're lost. And unless something changes, you're going to hell. That's the text. That's why this is so heavy. Can we have fun playing games? Sure, absolutely. I'm going to watch some football today. I'm planning on doing that. We can do that. But remember the flesh? Remember Gorge? He doesn't know when to stop. Gimme, gimme, gimme. More, more, more. You kill him one day, next morning, he says, I'm back. It's a daily grind. Every single day, he must be slayed. This text is a declaration of war. Are you in the war? Are you in the fight? Because if we're honest, we might need to make some changes. Put down the controller. Put down the remote. Pick up the word of God. Right? These pseudo battles that we're engaged in that don't really matter, they come at a price. And it's, our, it's to the detriment of our spiritual life. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Question, who does this? Who puts to death the deeds of the body? It's right there in the text. You do. You. Oh, living water's going all man-centered. Uh-uh, I'm just reading it. You put to death the deeds of the body. It's what it says. The Spirit doesn't do it apart from your involvement. You do it, but you don't do it alone. That leads to the how. How is this done? We put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. He doesn't do it for us, and we can't do it apart from him. Here's the picture. It's like this. I thought about it. It's like, you know, in our sin, we build up these idols. You know, we just stack them up, and they become like a tree. I liken them to a tree. And God, he takes us and he places us before the tree. And he says, these things I'm opposed to. You've built them up. Here it is. Take it down. But it's just me. What am my karate chop the tree, kick it, push it. I'm powerless to do it. But if there's a chainsaw over here, I got to pick up the chainsaw because the chainsaw doesn't cut the tree down without my wielding it. I pick it up. It now has the power that I need to accomplish that which has been commanded. So I can't do it on my own. The Spirit doesn't do it for me. It's me by the Spirit. And then I can accomplish that which is commanded. And if you've ever used a chainsaw, you know, you, you don't just, like, touch it against the tree and just, like, like butter, it goes through it. No, it is, it's violent. Wood chips flying, sawdust, everything. That's the Christian life. You got any wood chips on you? You got any sawdust on you? Good questions. So that's the picture of it. But how does this play out in real life? Well, let me tell you how it doesn't. All right, this is... This is the what not to do before we get to what to do. 
There was a man, he, uh, he, was, he had a practice of looking at internet pornography. Very popular struggle for many people, men and women alike. And he knew a bit of his Bible. He knew what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at it. What did Jesus say? He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Sounds pretty violent. And throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off more violence, and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now this man, like I said, he knew something of his Bible. This is a true story, by the way. And he knew that Jesus wasn't speaking literally there, literally plucking out an eye, literally cutting off a hand. No, but what Jesus is speaking of is taking drastic measures against your sin. And he knew that. So he says, I'm going to do something drastic. I'm going to go out and I'm going I'm to buy a massive padlock because my computer sits inside a cabinet. I'll put this big honking padlock on there, give my wife the key so that, you know, I, I can use the computer when she's here. When she's not, I don't have access. And he thought, there we go. Job is done. But what was he doing? He was relying on the power of the lock and not the power of the spirit. But one day, he's home alone. Temptation comes around. Flesh is like, hello. And he grabs a hammer and a screwdriver. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. Took the doors off the hinges and indulged in his flesh. He underestimated the flesh. And he fought in a wrong manner. Pretty drastic, right? I mean, he, his friends come over to the living room, big padlock on there. What do you got, gold in there? No, I'm fighting against sin. Fighting in the wrong manner, though. It's not by the Spirit. So how do we do it then? Killing sin by the Spirit starts in the mind. How do I know that? I'm going back. I'm going back. Remember, since for then, therefore, let's go back to Romans 8, 5, where, and notice the fours here, verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's exactly what verse 13 says. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. That's also what verse 13 says. To set the mind on the flesh, you die. You set the mind on the spirit, you live. It starts in the mind. Look again at the second part of verse 5. Those who live according, this is uh, back to verse 13. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. What are the things of the spirit? I, I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that the only there's only two places in our New Testament where things of the Spirit, those words appear like that. It's here in Romans 8 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read these verses here. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept, here it is, the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what are the things of the Spirit there in verse 14? What's in view? It's the Word of God. The Word of God is in view there. So Romans 8.5 is saying that those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those people are setting their minds on the Word of God. Well, if this is true, we can expect to see some corroboration in our Bible. Are there other witnesses that this is actually true? And there are. There's plenty. So remember, we're talking about warfare, life and death battle. You go into battle, what do you need? You need some armor. 
Do we have a chapter or a portion of a chapter where it talks about the armor of God? We do. Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. One offensive weapon in there used to kill was the sword of the Spirit. And the text even gives us the answer in case there was any doubt. It's the word of God. Since we're bouncing around the New Testament, let's go to Colossians 3, where it actually speaks about killing, putting sin to death. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sounds a lot like Romans 8, 13. And here's what it is. We get this laundry list here. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. See the continuity of Scripture here? It's hard, but it's consistent. In these you two once walked. Notice the past tense. When you were, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Very reminiscent of what we just saw up here. Ephesians 4, right? But why am I citing that? Because I don't think it's coincidental that later in Colossians 3, in verse 16, let the word of Christ, the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the word. It comes back to the word. Do we have an Old Testament witness? We do. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? With a massive padlock? No. By guarding it according to your word. Two verses later, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So before we sit down and watch another UFC fight or football game or turn on the PlayStation or Xbox and then bellyache about not having victory in our lives over our, our sin, maybe we ought to unsheath the sword of the Spirit. I'll give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Hold on to your hats for this one, okay? He pulled no punches from the pulpit. He said this, he goes, there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your finger. I warned you. Now, here's what I'll say this. I think preachers sometimes get overzealous. I, I have said things I wish I could take back and uh, pardon me from like, of, you know, I'm going to critique uh, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, but that's sort of like a bomb that you just drop and there's shrapnel everywhere. Let me try to clean that up a little bit, okay? The amount of dust on one's Bible is not the determining factor of their damnation or lack thereof. But I think we get the point, right? It's a gut punch from Pastor Spurgeon for sure. You know, so and I think we need that. I like to be punched in the gut. I'm kind of like a... Christian masochist. If it's for my good, <laughs> Christian masochist. Uh, that's not here. That's just. I'm gonna, that's, how, that's how nicknames are, uh, are achieved right there. But we need that. You know, we need, I need the kick in the fanny. Man, I do. <laughs> oh, my golly. Right. Sarah's like, Mike, you're too much. Yeah, I, there you go. You're welcome. I gave it to you, okay? All right, before we get to the rest of the passage, I, I do think we need some balance, all right? Always want to maintain that balance. My, my guess here is that there are some in this room, and I'm dead serious here, you need to get in the fight. You need to get off the bench, get in the game. I, I, I say that with as much humility and love for you as I possibly can. Are we fighting? 
Are you in the fight? I don't know that. You know. How am I supposed to know? But I believe that's the case here. You don't get this many people together and not have people in that camp. But you don't get this many people together and not have people in the other camp, which you come, you come in here and you're like, Mike, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I, I'm in the fight. Dude, I come in here, I'm, I'm weary from the fight. I've been struggling. I, I'm just, you know, I, I'm a total mess. That whole condemnation thing in verse 1, that, that doesn't apply to me because I'm so sinful. And maybe you're here today and you need some encouragement. Let me provide that. I heard this illustration from a guy named Matt Slick, which is a last name that is almost as cool as Bongo, but not quite. <laughs> he, 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 he created this, originates with him, but I kind of made it my own. Imagine we're on a boat, and we're looking out into the water, and I point out to you that there's two bodies in that water. The one body is yelling, screaming for help, arms are flailing, floundering around trying to stay afloat. A total mess. The other body is completely still, motionless, the perfect picture of peace. Which do you want to be? Well, you don't want to be the one at peace, right? Let me give you some more information. That peaceful body is face down in the water. Now who you want to be? Which one has life in them? The one that's an absolute disaster and a mess Crying, screaming, struggling, floundering. You want to be the struggler. Praise God for the struggler. There's life in the struggle. Lost people, don't worry about this. You know, lost people be like, dude, shut up and sit down. I've heard enough, okay? I'm not interested in, in dying to self because they're living according to the flesh. So let that be an encouragement to you. Let's finish it up. Verse 14, Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This notion here of being led by the Spirit, it can and has been distorted. So what's not in view here is personal guidance. You know, what car should I buy? Should I take the promotion? Should I marry this guy? Should I invest in some Bitcoin? That, that's not what Paul is talking about. How do I know that? Well, the context points us back. Remember, for, for all who are led by the Spirit. Draw back, go back, Mike, look at what it was just said. What have we been talking about? Killing sin. So where does the Spirit lead you? Leads you right into battle. That's where the Spirit will lead you. I'm grateful for that. So we enter into this cage match with Gorge, a fight unto death. Mortal combat. The real mortal combat. Not with Scorpion and Sub-Zero, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about. The leading has to do with the killing. You can't separate the two. It's right there in the context. Just follow the flow. But there's both confirmation and assurance in this verse. For one, it's, it's confirmed in Galatians. While we're going through Romans, might I encourage you, open up Galatians. You read it easily in one sitting. It's a short book. You will, it's uncanny. You're reading through Galatians, you're like, that's exactly what it says in Romans, precisely. And that's what we have here in Galatians 5. Paul, again, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. There's the fight. See it? They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What's in view there is being under the power of sin. We're not under the power of sin. We've been set free. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And this is where Gorge lives. He lives right here. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, here it comes, stern warning, I, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus 
They've done what? They have crucified, read mortified, killed the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you see the consistency of Scripture? It's great confirmation that we're understanding Romans 8 correctly. And this is very objective. Later in 8, we, we get a subjective assurance that we are in Christ. This can be very objective assurance. You can see somebody who's in the fight. We ourselves can know it. My wife knows that video games are not in She knows I'm not downstairs. I, I was bad. I won't even tell you. Like, I was bad. I used to do chewing tobacco. I have a dip in my mouth, hours of playing video games with two kids upstairs. Hours upon hours of that. I don't do that anymore. Very objective. You can just put a camera in my house and see how this has changed, right? So it's, it's a great assurance that you're in Christ. Look to your battle. You do have a battle going on, right? So if you're in the fight, there's great assurance that you are a child of God. And what's in play here, and we'll wrap up with this, two concepts. If you're tracking with me, it's security and responsibility. Both are at play here today. And Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, wrote something. This is probably one of the most profound things I've ever heard. He wrote this. He said, security without responsibility breeds passivity. But responsibility without security leads to anxiety. And that's why we quote commentaries here. You, you can leave me on an island with Romans 8 for the rest of my life. I'm never going to come up with something that profound and that pithy. It's just, it would take me a page to say all that. He said it so concisely. Let me read it again. Security without responsibility breeds passivity, but responsibility without security leads to anxiety. And guess what? God's word balances it perfectly. Perfectly. Praise God for that. Let me conclude with this. Last weekend, Pastor Mike talked about being in a courtroom with a good friend of his, and the verdict came down, and it was guilty. I, too, have been in a courtroom where a good friend of mine was on trial. You might ask, what kind of friends do you guys have? Well, we're in ministry, okay? I'll just say that. But the verdict for my friend was not guilty, okay? The guilty verdict with Pastor Mike's friend, that's Romans 1, 2, and 3. We're guilty. My buddy, not guilty, Romans 4 and 5. Remember justification? So if that doesn't excite you, what we got here in chapter 8 is something even more amazing. I've also been in that same courtroom where my buddy was on trial. This time, no one was on trial. You know why? It was an adoption hearing. That's what's in view here in Romans chapter 8. We're going to get to it next week, Lord willing. We'll really flesh this out next weekend. But this is adoption. We are children of God, sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family. And by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. If justification makes us right with God, adoption makes us sons of God. How amazing is this? In the courtroom of God, you know who we are? We're the guilty criminal. We're, we deserve the death sentence. And the judge pronounces us not guilty based upon what? The finished work of Jesus Christ, but doesn't stop there. He then adopts us into his family. <laughs> he says, you're guilty. I should lock you up and throw away the key. But that's not what I'm going to do. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a key. It's the key to my home. Come in. Make yourself at home. It's yours. I'm adopting you into my family. You're my son. You're my daughter. Come in. Take off your coat. Stay a while. Kick off your shoes. Put your feet up on the couch. It's your house. Welcome home. And we'll eat together. And I'll provide for you. I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to protect you. You are mine. That's the doctrine of adoption. We'll come back next week for more on that. 
But if that right there does not give you the motivation that you need to kill sin and live for the Lord, I don't know what will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you once again that we can gather in this place. Lord, we know that we contribute nothing to the great work of salvation that has been accomplished in our lives. It is all of Christ. It is all of him. We contribute nothing. But we are called to act. There are imperatives in the scriptures that, that, we, are, that we must obey. And we must do them not in our own strength, not in our own power, but with your power, your strength, by your spirit. And there can be great assurance in there. This chapter on assurance, this is one of them, that we are in the fight, that we're engaged in battle. We got bloody hands, we got cuts, we got wood chips and sawdust all over us, but that's, that's a good fight. That is a good fight. And we do it to bring honor to your name. You are our king. Lord, may we fight by the Spirit. And Lord, as we collect our offering here today, we also do that by the Spirit. It's not to show how generous we are. It's not to, for any uh, earthly kingdom that living water is in the process of building. We want to be about your kingdom, be about your agenda. I always thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness, the faithful giving of living water. It allows me to do so much in, in, as part of my job because people supply the resources. May we be good stewards of those resources that bring glory and honor to your name and draw more and more people into a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.